Uh, we have been in a series, if you've been around, you know this, but we've been in a series called Now and Later Life. And just a little fun fact, uh, anyone happen to know the slogan of Now and Laters? They didn't do a very good job marketing the slogan, because none of us know the slogan of this, but we all know Now and Laters. By the way, raise your hand if they had Now and Laters when you were a kid. If you're a kid, raise your hand, because they have them. All right? Look around. I, I, in first service, it was the same way. Everyone has had these. These have been around a long, long time. Here is the slogan of now and later candies. Ready for this? Hard and fruity now, soft and chewy later. Okay, so that's kind of where it gets the name. And it reminds us a little bit of the Christian life. Being a disciple of Jesus now can be really, really hard, right? There's a, there's a soft sweetness that we know is coming. That's, that's later. And those both components are kind of run in tension. Now, we're going to do a contest because I feel pity on all the children of the world, and I can't talk to all the children of the world, but I can talk to the children of our church. I never won this contest as a kid. But there was always these contests where if you guess the number of things in the jar, then you get to keep the entire jar of candy. Does that sound like a fun contest? Come on now! So, we're going to run a contest from now until the end of the series but there's a few rules to it, okay? First of all, first rule, there's no age limit. So anyone can participate in this, okay? Second rule, no Google, okay? You can't find this product and try to find it and figure it out. Uh, you'll notice that we've cut off some important information that would help you do some math, you geeks. So we're going to rip that apart. So you have to do this the old school way. And the final rule is this. If a child wins this... Uh, this is a, basically a giant tub of corn syrup, okay? So your parents have every right to demand what you do with all this corn syrup because they pay your dental bills. Fair enough? All right. So the way it's going to work is this. Later on today on this city, I'm going to post something like Now and Later Life Contest, and you post in there how many you think is, is in here, and if, if uh, whoever gets closest to it, they win the entire jar of candy. Sound good? All right. Now, here's part of what that represents. Any time that you talk about the return of Jesus Christ, you know what starts happening? People start talking about numbers. People start talking about dates. People start talking about all this stuff and figuring stuff out and algorithms and math and doing stuff to figure out what? The exact date he's coming back. What did Jesus say about the exact date he's coming back? Do any of us know? No. Does that stop us from trying to figure it out? No, we try to come, and people come with, with absolute certainty as to the number. Now, here's the thing. Is there an actual number of actual candies in this jar? Yes or no? Yes. Do you know the number? No. Do I know the number? Yes. Now, there's one other person. She's going to keep her hand down, but there's one other person in this church. I don't want you to pressure her and try to buy her off with some other candy, so I'm not going to tell you who it is, but there's one other person who knows the definitive number of candy that is in this jar right now. So that's for some accountability, so you know I don't just make this stuff up, okay? Um, like the return of Jesus, there is truth to be had. There is a number of days that are counting down, and he is definitively coming back on a certain day. But there's truth. There's revelation that's been given to us, and that's to be known. And there is definitive truth, actual things that are withheld from us that we don't know. So as we talk about the return of Christ, it's actually really important, because as Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians, he doesn't get all into numbers and, and the when of it. He actually talks about the implications of how we should be living our lives in light of that return of Christ, okay? So, as we do that contest, we're going to have a lot of fun with it. This, this, uh, this runs for about 10 weeks or so, so you'll have some time to kind of come and look at it. You can look at it and kind of figure out what you think the, 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 the number is, but, um, but no Google. All right. Um, one last announcement before we, we uh, jump into some things. Um, Mexico is coming up this summer. Every summer, at least once a year, we go down to Grace Children's Home, which is where we go hang out with a bunch of amazing people, kids and tios and tias, that are caring for those kids. And uh, many of you are going to be going this summer with us as well. Deposits for that trip are due next week. Okay, So Jonathan and Bertha Hurley, um, get to them with any questions, info, all that kind of stuff that's there. But I just wanted to, to get word out to you. All right. Growing up is hard to do, right? Growing up is hard to do, not only on the person who's doing the growing, but also on the person who's helping other people grow up, right? There's a lot of trial and a whole bunch of error that goes on for both kids and parents. 
for both mentors and mentorees. And so growing up is hard to do. Spiritually, it's the same thing. Jesus said this, you must be born, what? Again. Remember that? You must be born again. So the second that God opens your eyes to the light of the gospel, you are, in essence, born fresh. And you aren't born a fully developed spiritual being with all the answers, and with all the knowledge. You're born like a baby. You don't have a whole lot of knowledge. You don't have a whole lot of skill. You can't even really hold your head up. And you throw up a lot on things. Okay, That's what babies do. You need someone around you to kind of to kind of help with that. This is why, curiously enough, a 17-year-old kid could actually um, field questions from a 40-year-old person and and be the one doing the mentoring because because they've been walking with God for a long time. They've had the Holy Spirit sanctifying them. They've been in the Word of God, and all of a sudden, someone gets saved last week at the age of 40, and they come and that 17-year-old they, they go, man. You understand this stuff. Help me. How, how does prayer work? And how does salvation work? And how can I know I'm saved? And how do you know the Bible's true? And all these questions just kind of, kind of come at you. That's because we must be born again. And when we're born again, we're not born fully developed. It ought to promote a lot of humility in us, right? As we, as we walk through the, the Christian walk, it also ought to, ought to spur us on to remember, Man, helping those who are, who are new to the faith is going to require something maybe a little bit different than, than what we've been thinking about. Today what we're going to do is we're going to see a pattern of how people grow spiritually. Paul and this missionary team, Timothy and Silas, are going to show us this is how people grow spiritually. Do you know why this is of utmost concern to every Christian? Because Jesus called us, every one of us, to go out and be spiritual parents. Did you know that? Go, therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Jesus and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The way that people develop spiritually is of utmost concern to every Christian who takes the Great Commission seriously. You are called to go and be a spiritual parent to to other people. And when they're born again, they need the nurture and the care and the instruction and the, and the mentoring like a parent. And that's what, that's what Paul's going to show us in this section of Scripture. Here's the question I would have you ask at the start of our morning. Who is it that God has entrusted to me to be a spiritual parent to? On the back of your notes this morning, I've actually put a spot where you could actually write names down. Who is it that God has entrusted for you to be an influencer? Have you heard the phrase, I led someone to Christ? Leadership is about influence, right? God God may have caused you to lead someone to Christ. God may have brought someone into your life that was led to Christ two months ago, and and now they're new in town here, and and they're they're looking for, for some mentors. They're looking for some older brother or sister to grab them by the hand and kind of walk them forward and teach them through a little bit. Who is it that God's entrusted to you to be a spiritual parent to? I want you to write a name down or two because that takes it from being this sort of like hypothetical, right, into something really tangible today as to why this message is urgent and why what we see in the scriptures is powerful to us. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, right with all the T's, okay? And in chapters 2 and 3, here's what Paul and his team are doing. They're vindicating their ministry. They're defending their ministry. It's like on the schoolyard when someone speaks up and other kids go, why should we listen to you? That's kind of in our spirit to do, right? Someone starts to assert any authority and tell it like it is. Oh, why should I listen to you? Paul's basically answering that question in chapters 2 and 3. And he's, and he's defending what it is they should be looking at, how, why they should be listened to. By the way, um, Paul had a, opponents for one very simple reason. He took the truth that he knew and he lived it out. When you take the truth that you know and you live it out, you know that we're called to be open about our faith and to be bold about the witness for Jesus Christ. You too can have that blessed gift called enemies, right? You will, you will garner opposition without trying to at all just by speaking the truth. Some of you are walking in that right now. You're like, amen, preach it, brother. I, I'm living that. Some of you are like, you know what? I'm choosing the soft and comfy now because I don't open my mouth. And that's a wrestling match we all go through all the time. 
God is so patient with us with that. But my urging to you, church, my, my, my pleading with you would be if you have no opposition, if no one is opposing the way you live, the way you speak, what you stand for, please evaluate your life if you call yourself a Christian. If it lines up with Jesus Christ and they called him Prince of Demons, what are they going to call his followers? That's what Jesus said. So, he has opposition, which everyone who preaches the gospel will have. And last week, here's what he does. He's defending himself by saying this. These are some of the lower motives that we didn't do among you. Greed did a great job of just unpacking. Here's all the things we weren't among you. We didn't do these things among you. And what he's saying to the people, those who he's leading, he's saying, look at our lives, look at our message, look at how we interacted. These are the things that we did not do. Pause for a moment and take a look at this list. Who do you want... Uh, actually, as you, as you look at this list, um, think about this. Where, where do you see things like deception, people-pleasing, error, impurity, flattery, greed, and self-promotion happening? Politics. So there's, there's one. I mean, we're in, a, we're in a political season, right? Politics, it's certainly there in politics. Okay? How about in sports? Does this happen in sports? How about in business? How about at school? I mean, this is really rampant, right? I mean, this is happening everywhere. This is the game people enter into and play, right? Flatter to open doors. Bend the truth a little bit here and there. God will understand. It's just to get ahead. Fake it till you make it, right? I mean, this is just how things happen in the world. People have bought in, sinker, Christians included, to say this is just how you have to do to kind of move through life. This missionary team says no. These things aren't just off base a little. These are wicked. These are underhanded. These are what we renounce. These are the lower motives. By the way, lower motives don't take any discipline to learn. They're instinctual, right? If anything, it takes discipline not to fall back into these things, right? And when you find yourself sort of veering back into them, it takes discipline saying, no, we're not going to do that. If you trace sort of the but God or but Christ in the Scripture, it's really powerful. Because what it says is, we all were going this route. This is how we would get things done too. But God comes in and begins to form Christ in us. It's a big word called sanctification. And that's just Christ being formed in the brand new baby believer. And that never stops until we die. That's just going, that's just ongoing. Some of, some of us got saved really, really young. I think that's because God just needed a long time to work on the sanctification process, right? He's like, this one's going to take a long time to form Christ in. We'll get him saved young. So when God comes and he changes from the inside out, and all of a sudden we are freed up to do the higher motives. Look at these higher things. Paul and Timothy Silas were God's men delivering God's message in God's way. And these are the things that come out, and we'll see this in our text today. When you take a look at these two lists side by side, by the way, and you think, who do I want to be my neighbor? Who do I want to be my friend? Who do I want to be my boss? Right? Who do I wish my parents were? Who do I wish my siblings were like? Man, wouldn't we all choose the higher motives? You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to subscribe to the Bible. You don't have to be sitting in a church on Sunday morning. I think if we pull anyone in San Jose this morning, on this Sunday morning, they'd say, yeah, for sure, the left side. Those people that live next to me are the right side, and I, it's just so hard to live next to them. And yet, live this way with the higher motives? It garners opposition. Paul and Timothy Silas had opponents. They had, they had people accusing them of things. Why? Because they were living this, this, this left side, this, this light shining in a dark place, and it was offensive, and it will be for you as well. If you take the first six verses of this chapter, he's defending everything by negative. We were not this. We did not do that. If you take the next verses, 7 through 12, he's saying these are the things we were. Now he's defending his ministry positively. These are the things we did do. These are the people we were. So here's the premise that I want you to get this morning. Paul is saying this. Look at how we lived among you. That's what he's appealing to. Why should you listen to us? Look at our lives. Yes, we brought you the living word, but we also lived the word among you. Our lives backed up our message. The truth that we spoke was on display by how we lived our lives. Look at it. That's why you should believe and listen. 
This title picture, by the way, is, is just a great view of what it looks like to ride a bike, right? And to ride a bike, you need two pedals. You need two feet to be going uh, in, in sync with each other. If you have just one, it's kind of hard and clunky. When you get two and you're first learning, it's kind of slow at first. But once you get going, you can really move places on a bike. Amen, John? Amen, Amen brother. The two things are bringing the message, spoken word, spoken truth. There's revelation for us. Reveal it. Speak it out. Be a witness. And the lived life. Living out the things that you're speaking. Walking in the truth. So that the, the, the telling of the truth is also lived out. And that's, that's where the power is seen. Your mouth is in motion, but so is your life. And together those form this really, really powerful picture. I want you to see from the text this morning his motive. Paul, Paul was a pretty intense guy. If you kind of read the scriptures and get to know his personality, he didn't do this so he could get an A plus in missionary class. He didn't do this because he likes to excel and be the best at everything and beat out all the other missionary teams. He did this for one simple reason. You would become so very dear to us. He did this out of love. We, we, we loved you so much we wouldn't think of doing anything else than tell you the truth and live the truth among you so you really, really get it. All right, with that as a setup, let's read verses 7 through 12. I'll read, you follow along, lest it be too crazy. Here we go. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, pedal one, but also our very own selves, pedal two, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. A quick side note. I don't know if you just caught it, but there is so much we language in there and not a hint of I language. Last week, if you count up the number of times in Gurea's passage in six verses, nine times he says, we, our, and us. In our passage this morning, he's going to say it another 12 times. We, our, and us versus I, mine, me. This wasn't about Paul saying, look, I did this and I did that. I never did that. It's we. And here's the key. We trumps me in the kingdom of God. We trumps me in the kingdom of God. Don't we see this in the home? God puts a mom and a dad to raise children. That's teamwork. They're different. They're complementary. I get that some of us grew up in homes that didn't have one or the other. The fact that you long for that. If you're not a teammate right now as a home and you're longing for that, that's a good thing. Fight for that. Work for that. Strive for that. That's God's plan is teamwork in the kingdom of God. We says a few things. If there's anyone who could have been a standout superstar, it'd be Paul, right? Paul instead, though, is intentionally aligning himself with Timothy and Silas, the other leaders. It's this air of humility. He's clothing himself with humility, saying, look, we rise and fall as a team. We did this. We were gentle. We exhorted you. We walked blamelessly. We all worked hard. No one kept track of who worked hard and the other. That's unimportant to us. We understand that me gets in the way of God. We stand and block God's view when it's that way. But we does something else. When you think about leaders in a Christian organization, leaders in a church, leaders in a parachurch ministry, a mission agency, whatever, you ought to use the platform that's been given to you not to stand up and toot your own horn and say, look at me and look at all I've done, but rather to use your platform to be able to call other people and challenge other people to come up and shoulder the burden of shepherding. Begin to grow up and take on the mantle of the sheep and what needs to go on with leadership. And that's what we see going on with Paul as he leads and serves in a team. All right, I want to give you a quick understatement alert, okay? Here it is. 
You ready for it? No one's going to fall out of their chair with this. This is, this is common knowledge. Raising a child takes time and energy. Okay? No, no one fell. No one fell out of their chair. Right? You're going, yes, that's exactly right. It takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. Paul is going to move into what he just wrote is this concept of people being born again, brand new disciples, and he's talking in parenting languages. And here's what you see with Paul. He doesn't, he doesn't have these new converts, these new kids, sent off to a babysitter. He doesn't say, great, you're saved now and you believe the truth. Head to this conference, I gotta run. Instead, he is gentle among them. Instead, like a father, he's encouraging to them. And what we see with this is some powerful truth. Um, all right, kids, you have an opportunity this morning to do something with your mouth. The book of James says we can use our tongue to bless people and to curse people, right? We're not going to do any cursing, all right? We're going to make a commit, no cursing. But we're going to get a jump on Mother's Day. Next week is Mother's Day. And you're going to just answer this simple question. This is a real question expecting real answers back, okay? What is great about mom? All right, what's great about mom? Let me hear some things that are great about mom. If your mom's in the room, there's a little bit of pressure right now. I get it. I've put some pressure on you. Joe. Makes us food. Makes us food. <laughs> Booyah. In the back, Abby, go. She takes care of us. She takes care of us. Brent. Brings us, Brings us to school. Absolutely. Sydney. She's really nice. Good. Cassie. Texas in bed. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Gives us candy. That's right. Here you go. Just kidding. All right. So many great things about mom, right? And, and we're going to see some very specific things here, um, here in the text. Now, I get that some of you didn't have a great earthly mom, okay? There's a little saying that, that, that goes around that says, uh, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? And some of you live with a mom that maybe was just kind of a controlled, tyrannical person, and God needs to sort of redeem your picture of motherhood. Right? But most moms, in fact, as I look around this church, I think about how many wives, moms, sisters are the ones who pioneered their family being at this church. They were the first to come, and hopefully, in a non nagging way, they gently said, Hubby, brother, father, would you come with me? I'm going to go to church. That's what I'm going to do. And I tell you, there are families in our church, many of them who are here in this church today because of a mom, because of a wife, because of a sister. So I praise God for that. Did you know that next Sunday, historically, will be the third highest attended church service in all of America besides Christmas and Easter? Why? It's Mother's Day. The moms want to be in church, and they, and they bring their families to church. So praise God for that. Paul's going Paul's to mention that, that they were mom-like. And here's what they were like, first of all. First of all, they were gentle. Gentle, like a nursing mother taking care of, of her own child. What an image Paul paints for us, right? I mean, is there anything more tender, more caring, more nurturing than this? Uh, realize that we live, by the way, in a completely upside-down world, okay? We have cultural watchdogs who would write nothing of women wearing revealing outfits and showing too much skin, but they get super, super uptight when moms act like moms. So, so when you see an image and you hear all this writing and stuff, I mean, there's this weird little thing going on in different blogs and stuff. Nonsense. This is an amazingly beautiful, powerful image that Paul gives to us and says, this is what we, all three men, were like with you. We were gentle and caring. Like a mom nursing her child. Think about physically what happens in this process. Moms ingest adult food that a baby could never eat, and then their body converts it into baby's milk, and the little tyke gets fed. Isn't that cool? Here's the deal. We were all in that spot at one point. None of us could eat on, on adult food. We all needed a mom in our life to feed us, to nurture us, to care for us, to give us what was needed. When you think about an older Christian brother or sister, you know what they do? They take young Christian disciples who long for the pure milk of the Word of God, and they take the more confusing, the more difficult concepts, and they break them down into these little bite-sized pieces and say, here, here, chew on this. Always with an eye to say, keep growing, keep learning, keep chewing, so that you can one day turn around and do that for someone else. Man, the physical and the spiritual on this concept really line up. It's so powerful. 
The team was gentle. Now let me just say, gentleness does not come natural to us. It's not instinctual for us. Even for girls. I have two two-year-olds living in my house right now. One of the things that we've been doing with them since, since we were in China and just getting to know them is we spend a lot of time with them right here in a baby carrier. and we, we are letting them touch our face and me and Tate play a game where here's daddy's ears, here's Tate's ears and we're learning English and we're, we're doing all these things. And while we're playing cutesiness, oh, all of a sudden you get a slap. Because little two-year-olds decide, I wonder what happens when this goes on. Boom! Pops mom or dad on the cheek. Now here's our, here's our little standard thing. We take the hand and we go, gentle, right? Gentle. And we wipe the face and we use his face. Okay, we got it. This isn't, this isn't confined just to the boy of the family. Everly does this too. Everly started to do something a little bit, just sort of a little bit. She was pinching or something. And I said, gentle. And she goes, gentle, gentle. So I'm like, she wanted her smack in. She's like, oh, it's like Pavlov's dog. When I hear gentle, I'm supposed to have smacked already. I missed my line. Boom. So it's getting better and better. But here's the bottom line. Gentleness doesn't come easily. We have to teach it. We have to train out of it. We have to be disciplined not to be ungentle, right? Um, and so, and so, so it is with, with us. And, and think about leadership for a moment. I just read an amazing book. I'm blank title. Um, I'll give it to you at some point. But it was talking about the whole idea of positional leadership versus character leadership. Positional leadership often appeals to the position, the rightful place they have to execute their will and to make calls. So it's a person saying, I'm the boss, that's why. I'm the parent and I said so, that's why. Whereas character-driven leadership cares about the soul. They have every right to make demands, but instead they so prefer to be patient and nudging and coaching and gentle and guiding with their leadership. If they ever had to, they could step in and appeal to the positional, but that's not their interest at all. And that's sort of a last resort. And when I look at those two next to each other, I see, wow, that's Jesus-style leadership versus much of the leadership I see in the world today. The world's leadership manuals talk a lot about being self-assured. They talk a lot about being well-spoken, about being dominant, about being confident in yourself. And Jesus said something different. Look at these scriptures. A gentle answer turns away wrath, Proverbs says. Jesus said, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me, for I am gentle. Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle. And James says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, than peaceable, gentle. Gentle runs counter to most of what we see here in our daily life. Secondly, he mentions being caring. Um, my wife a couple weeks ago was reminding me that what we're doing two times a day when we're doing bottle feeding is we are rewiring neurological pathways that were broken, that are missing from being, from being a baby and not getting it in an orphanage. We are holding a child just like a baby, and we are, and we are teaching eye contact. We are communicating as we give this warm, this warm fluid to this child that we love you. You're in a safe place. I'm here for you. And we're just speaking words of love over this child that didn't get that. Science tells us all sorts of fascinating things about the brain, about how far a kid can focus at that age. You know what it is? You guessed it. Right here, between mom and a nursing child. And when that's broken, it needs to be repaired. So that's what we're doing every morning and every night. Now, you know why she was reminding me of this? Because I had forgotten. You know what dads do? Dads do things, and as they do them, they are figuring out in their brain how they can do them more efficiently. So I'm sitting here going, okay, I can certainly do more than just, than just do this. So I nudge the bottle here, and I'm over here preparing their jammies or doing something else. My eyes are every which way, and my wife's a few feet away, and she's just gently reminding me, Dave, they don't need calories right now. They just had dinner. They need care. Remember what we're doing. And I had to like snap out and go, oh, yeah, we're not achieving tasks on a list right now. We're, t- we're investing time. That's what we're doing. We're bonding. And I totally forgot that. When you think about church leadership, let me just tell you, there are ways to produce numbers that look more impressive that are a lot more efficient 
than God's way of nurturing and patience and those kinds of things. Gria's title for his message last week was Durable Results. Not a bunch of numbers where a bunch of people got saved and we, we cheer that on or we have a huge membership role, but we don't really know who they are. God's ways are different. God's ways are higher ways. Jesus talks a lot about planting and sowing. Man, that's a slow process. You ever watch a plant grow? Boring, right? You know how hard it is to raise a child? It's hard. It takes time. There's this, there's this lengthy period of time that goes on. But if we want durable results, we're going to do it God way. God's way. We're going to be patient. We're going to be caring. We're going to be nurturing. One of the things I've never seen a mom do while she's nursing is demanding respect from her child. I birthed you. You give me respect that's due my name, right? Moms just aren't into that. That's not their purpose for nursing that child right there. There's this, there's this mental image that's, that, that ought to be there as we're leading people. And when, it feels, when you have your impatience button just getting knocked over and over and over, surely there's a quick way to do this. Man, you think about a nursing mom. There's not a quick way to do that. A guy by the name of Robert Moffat, who became a famous missionary, was leaving home for the first time, and his mother walked with him for part of the way. When she could walk no further, she stopped, and she asked, Robert, promise me something. What? replied the boy. Promise me something, she said again. You'll have to tell me what it is before I promise. It is something you can easily do, she said. Promise me. Promise your mother. Robert looked into, his, into her face and said, Very well, mother, I will do anything you wish. With that, she bent down, she clasped her hands behind his head and gently pulled his face to hers and said this, Robert, you are going out into a wicked world. Begin every day with God and close every day with God. And with that, she kissed him. And Robert would go on to say this, it was the kiss of my mother in that moment that made me a missionary. You know, a lot of times people come in with the rod of authority to win people to Christ, forgetting that it's, it's the kindness that leads us to repentance. And they overlook that. Paul wrote to a young Christian named Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He says this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Catch this. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And he caps off that instruction with this, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Lastly, he calls out very specifically that, that, that they were affectionate with them. You've become dear to us. We loved you so much. This missionary team um, didn't just bring their message, but, but brought their lives because their hearts had been knit to these people. I was talking with a church planner this week, and he was asking about some things, and he said, he said, how do you grow to love your church? And I said, man, time and proximity. Get close to them and spend a lot of time with them. And over time, that's how it happens. I don't really know of a shortcut to that. These people loved their leaders, it seems, and the leader certainly loved them. You know, at this church, we use this word share a lot. It's really one of the essence parts of Neighborhood Bible Church, and there's sort of a double ring truth to it. We all know we're supposed to share our faith, right? That's not lost on any Christian. Read your Bible for three seconds. You understand. We're supposed to be a witness for Jesus Christ. But the signs and wonders that accompany the gospel are when we self-sacrificingly share ourselves with people as well. It's this, it's this dual pedal of giving the message, sharing the gospel, and sharing our lives as well. Becoming worse off just so that someone else can be better off. Getting up close enough to people's lives to where we really can share life with one another. You know, we do that in two huge ways here. There are big formal ways we do share events. We're going to do a welcome lunch after, after church today. A community group is formally organizing that to all serve together. They're going to have a Good time, serving together and, and serving us as a church family. We're going to Mexico this summer. That's a formal share event, right, where we kind of galvanize the, the church. We all come together and we all go do something big and spectacular. 
But on a week-to-week basis, far less spotlight, it's just the idea of meeting together in community groups. Part of why we have community groups scattered all through the city on almost every night of the week is because if we don't schedule time in our busy lives, we just won't see each other. We carve out time to spend time with one another, to share life with one another. The theme that we have kind of overarching this season of community groups is this. Take it off. (gasps) Sounds a little risque. Take it off means this. If you're a newcomer, take off your coat and stay a while. Give this thing a shot. Come grab a seat and really, really give this a shot. If, If this is old hat to you and your life is built around going to Bible studies, here's the challenge to you. Take off your mask and risk being known. Take off your mask and risk being vulnerable with other people. Really, really listen and take care for the people sitting in your community group so that, so that you begin to share life with them as well. Those are the two pedal strokes that we are striving after as we move in that. Here's a, here's a truth. Every single week, you worship with people who are severely hurting. There is more pain and need represented right here in this room by far than all of the identified pastors, directors, and community group leaders could possibly try to handle on their own. The scripture has said this, man, we are to be, we are to be nurturing and building up one another. This isn't a small handful of people with business cards that have a little title. This is a Christian's responsibility. So what if you came next Sunday? Many of you already do this, so don't feel, uh, don't feel like you're being rebuked. Many of you do this. But what if you came next Sunday with an eye to say, God, would you help me minister to someone who looks like they might just need someone to sit down and say hi to them? What if you prayed and said, God, I'm I'm willing and available and open. Would you help me come and shoulder the burden of, of some need that I might come across? I'm yours. I'm looking for it. I'm wide open. And the impact of that has been great around here, and I long for it to grow all the more. Let me move on to verse 9. He says that they were hardworking and holy. Verse 9, our labor and toil, observe it. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to you. This is really the role of both parents, right? Parents don't put the burden on the kids. I don't charge my five-year-old for the PG&E bill, right? Get a job. You're the one using the lights. I don't say that. I shoulder the burden so that they don't have to be burdened with that stuff. Sometimes my kids ask questions. I go, you know what? You're a kid. You don't have to think about any of that stuff. Let me worry about that. It's cool being a kid. You only get to be it for a season. So let me handle that. Paul, Timothy, and Silas, they worked hard. And they worked hard because they loved their spiritual kids a lot. And they didn't want to put the burden on them, so they took it themselves. In this particular instance, we know from Paul he was a tent maker, meaning he worked a day job so that he didn't do what he could have rightfully demanded, which is, hey, support us as we work night and day and teach you the gospel and work as ministers at this church. Instead, he said, just to make sure it's totally clear and there's no hint or whisper of profiteering, we're going to do this free of charge. We're not going to do what we could rightfully demand, which is to have you support us. We worked night and day. He says, man, pay attention to this. Look at how we lived our lives. The team didn't come in there for any ulterior motives whatsoever. The teaching wasn't just their hard work, but also their holy walk. They, they modeled how they were teaching to live. He uses these three words in verse 10, holy, righteous, and blameless. Don't get too hung up on the three. If you want to kind of just compact them together, they were men of integrity. What, they, what you saw on the outside was what was going on on the inside. How they spoke in one setting held true to how they would speak in a different setting. Holiness has to do with being right before God. Righteousness has to do with just kind of right actions with your neighbors. And being blameless had this notion of having the, a, a good reputation for those outside of the church. Here's a penetrating question, parents, of physical children versus spiritual children. What if your kids could come to work or come to school with you and hear the reputation that you had at work? Would that be a positive thing where you'd say, yeah, I would would like that. I'd be okay with that. Or does that make your heart skip a quick beat and go, maybe not. Maybe there are some things I need to tighten up. Maybe there are some things I need to realize I'm feeling off the hook at work in my business dealings than I am at home. 
hardworking and holy, isn't it always a lame platform to say, do as I say, but not as I do? I mean, you just blow that off in a heartbeat. Son, I want you to, I want you to do as I say, but not as I do. Don't look at my life. Kids just, they will emulate what you do. They won't even listen to the instruction at that point because it doesn't hold any water. They, they won't give any weight to it. Hardworking and holy models are what Christian new kids need. All right, now it's dad's turn. Let's hear some good things about dads. Kids, we're getting a massive jump on Father's Day, so you're scoring huge points right now. But uh, what are some great things about dad? What do you love about dad? Let's hear it. David. He plays basketball. That's cool. Do you ever get to beat him? Do you ever beat him? Last night? Um, Let's hear it. Let's you watch TV. Like that. Yeah. What's that? Plays football with you. So cool. Um, Let's hear from you, Kate. Let's just play video games. Awesome. Sydney. Teaches you new games. Very cool. One more. He cheers us on. You must have a good dad. Um, man, what a segue. Cassie didn't know I was going to say this, but here's the reality. Um, my dad was so not a sports guy. He was into, the only sports he was into were the sports his kids were into. So he would go to, he would go to all day swim meets and cheer like a maniac. He would go to soccer games and you'd think he was a raving soccer fan. He couldn't care less about any other sport. He raised four boys, all of us, Love sports. We love playing sports, talking sports, watching sports. So I think it like skips a generation or something. But my dad would sit out there on my soccer sidelines with a little red megaphone. It was like this big. It was plastic. And he would sit there and he would cheer at the top of his lungs. He would cheer until his voice would give out. He'd be going up and down the sidelines cheering me on. And the coolest thing, one of the coolest things about being a dad is getting to do that for my own kids. There's so much in sports that kind of teach us about life, right? Uh, my kids tried out for a swim team, and one of them was very confident. Two of them weren't as confident. And just a couple of days ago, man, we nudged them and said, you can do this. You've got this. And they did it. They didn't drown. Um, and, and they made it. And so they're on the team. And, and like, we, just, we, we need that, right? And sometimes you don't get played like you think you should. And you're told, man, keep your chin up. Be a great player. You just keep working as hard as you can, whether the coaches are watching or not, right? I mean, all these life lessons that kind of come out in sports. It's not that dads do this alone and moms don't, but I, I love how Paul brings in this picture of exhortation, encouragement, and I charge you is the way that, that ESV translates it. Some of you are say uh, implore or demand or a strong urging. And when you take those three together, it just forms this really powerful picture. I've never met a person in all my life who doesn't need someone who believes in them who doesn't have someone who not only believes in them, but is cheering them on, saying, you've got this, you can do this. When you think of the word exhortation, when you, when you look it up, you realize that it covers warning, right? There's, there's exhortation sometimes that's, that's warning. Sometimes it's comfort. Sometimes it's instruction. Encouragement carries with it this, this idea of, of speaking courage into. Some of you battle and wrestle with discouragement to a really strong degree. There's nothing like an appropriately timed person in the know who's right up next to you, giving you encouragement, offering you encouragement. And with this whole notion of charging or urging that he talks about, like, like, a, like a father, much of Paul's role was teaching and, and instructing, and it came in different kinds of ways. And there are some things that a dad says, okay, this is just some fatherly advice, now you go choose. But there are things that a dad says, this is mandatory. This you must do. These are life and death things. And so, so I'm, 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 I'm demanding this of you. I'm putting this demand on you, child, because I love you. And Paul does the same thing with his teaching. John Stott, in a commentary, says this, Since it was part of his teaching that the kingdom of God has both present, now, manifestation, and future, later, glory, We may assume that he appealed to the Thessalonians to live a life worthy both of their dignity now and their destiny at the end. 
Some of you have been really observant and you've observed our clock off to my left and your right. Instead of numbers around this clock, these are all just phrases that we'll keep seeing, themes over and over in the book of Thessalonians. And some of you uber-observant people have been paying attention to the clock hands. Each week, we're just kind of nudging the clock hands toward two of the key ideas that are being drawn out. We've already talked um, a little bit about this. Watch for Jesus' return, right? That every chapter ends with that and, and that, and that the way we live now has implication for later and on and on. Some of you will look at this and say, I don't know how to be a parent. I don't know how to be mom-like. I don't know how to be dad-like. I had rotten parents. I don't, I don't want to emulate them. Here's the message to you. Love as you learned from God. You know, God's the ultimate parent. If you're a Christian, you don't have, you don't have to have anyone teach you about that. If, where, where, where God is forgiving and gracious, you go and be forgiving and gracious. Where God's really long-suffering, you go be long-suffering. Where God has a hard line and says this far and no more, you say this far and no more. You just keep drawing close to your heavenly Father, He's modeling for you what you're supposed to be modeling to your spiritual children that you're mentoring and teaching. Isn't that, isn't that freeing? That's not rocket science. You just take what you've learned and pass it on. You know, one of the great things that we see in this is just sort of the tandem of mom and dad coming together. We need both. God inevitably puts teams together to lead churches, lead missionary agencies and whatnot that are, some of the people are super high on mercy. And then other people on the team, they can't even spell mercy. And God puts them together to lead a church. And it's the best thing. There ought to be people on an elder board that you just go, man, that person rubs me so wrong, but I know they're right. I see those traits in scripture too. And he's right. We should be thinking that way. And we have that on the board here. And it's awesome. It's great to have that teamwork working together. Ephesians 4, along with many other places, kind of shows the variety that each situation and each kid kind of needs a different word in a different season. Sometimes it's more dad-like. Sometimes it's more mom-like. But it says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Not according to what you want to say, what's convenient, or what you feel particularly well read on. According to their need. That's what we're striving for. That it may benefit those who listen. So Paul's writing, look at our team. You know we were mom-like. You know we were dad-like. You know we were hard-working and holy. How did you know? Because we lived among you. We allowed ourselves to be known. We rubbed shoulders with each other. And he's appealing to that. Here's my question for you as the band comes up. Am I cultivating gentleness and affection and self-sacrifice and hard work and urgency? Am I an encourager? Secondly, do my words and my love line up? Or are they fighting each other? Is one pedal going really fast and the other one barely gets a foot on once in a while? Or are they working in tandem? You know, parents like Paul understand something with their young children. They understand that some really, really hard times are coming for them. And not just hard times like difficult, but hard times like wicked. That there's evil out in the world. And so like Paul, they want to prepare them for in advance on how to deal with things. You can't shield your kids from storms. And if you try to do that, you're only doing them a disservice. We're going to read this later on in 1 Thessalonians. You can, you can check it out in the community group questions this week. But Paul warns them about the afflictions that are coming. Sometimes we equip them to withstand Sometimes we teach them to avoid when possible. And sometimes you teach your kids to stand and fight when that's what's needed. But we are sending our kids. We are raising up spiritual kiddos that are going out into a wicked world. And Jesus had lots to teach about that. Rob and I were talking about the worship set this week. And um, we were just talking about including this week um, something that I would call a, a, a hopeful lament. A lament is a song that just cries out, This stinks! 
Why are things so bad? You know, much of the Psalms are hopeful laments. They just cry out how lousy things are. Yet with an eye to the return of Jesus Christ. And Rob steered me towards some lyrics that, that he and the band put together. And as they offer this up, let me direct your attention to a couple of things. One, just catch the hopeful lament out of it. Secondly, this is an offering from the lives of our band that are just being vulnerable, saying these were just written. This was written a couple of years ago. This was written in a season of difficulty and hardship. And they're sharing their life with you. They're modeling what we just read. They're sharing their life with you, not just truth, not just get up and play a few chords. As we do this, we're going to take up our offering and, um, and worship God in that way as well. So, Ben, why don't you sing for us? I want you just to grab the hands of someone next to you and uh, move your way across the aisle. We're just going to act like family here. <laughs> I want to just give you my sincere thanks. When you show up week after week after week, you are entrusting yourself to, in essence, the parental leadership of this church. And I want you to know that we hold that in high regard. We feel the weight of that, the joyful burden of that. This morning, there are some people, like every single Sunday, who you're here amidst incredible pain, incredible doubt, um, wrestling with temptation, wrestling with bombs that have just gone off in your life. Thank you for crawling here, if that's what it took. Our prayer every single week is that God would continue to lift up and just, just those who are in amazing places let that strength be a place that can be reached out to and help to those who are barely hanging on in this room today. So thank you for, um, for entrusting not just to us, but really to, to, to one another. Let me, let me close in a word of prayer. God, we look to you as the perfect Father. Thank you for showing us how it's supposed to be done. God, we just sang this lyric that your love is warm as we look to what we would traditionally put towards a mom and look what we traditionally put towards a great dad, God, we see it wrapped in the life of Jesus Christ, lived out for us, interacting with some really gnarly characters, God, that, that would be tough to deal with. God, thank you for that beautiful picture. God, I thank you, too, that as I turn the lens on the congregation, asking them how they're parenting, God, I turn it on the leaders of this church now, not just the pastors and elders, but, but the community group leaders that we commission to, to shepherd as they're shepherded by Jesus Christ. God, it's a holy work. It's a work that's under attack, and we lay ourselves at your feet, God. We strive for this picture that we see in the scriptures today, that we renounce the wicked ways of our flesh. We, 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 we disregard those, God. We, we pray for the grace in our lives, to not walk in those debased things. But God, to let Christ be formed in us, to cooperate with how you do things, to look to your timetable, to look to your picture of success. And God, we just give that all to you. We pray for growth in this room. God, we long to be in a different place at the end of this year than we are right now at the start of May. And God, with your help, grabbing onto your hand, walking with your people faithfully, we know, God, you're causing progress to occur. And so, God, we just want to cooperate with that. It's in Jesus' name that we all pray and all God's children said, Amen. Amen.